Well, I'm going to just jump right into the Word of God. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there to Micah, in the Old Testament, chapter 7. And as you're turning there, uh, I think that it's okay to read a bit of Scripture from time to time in church. Don't you agree? So for today, I, I love if you bear with me, I'm going to actually read the entirety of chapter 7 of Micah. I'll explain why I'm doing that. But it's 20 verses, and I just feel like the truths that are explained and that are proclaimed in this passage are ones that are really good for us to read together and to, at length, read the whole chapter. So let's read it now. Micah chapter 7, verses 1 through 20. The prophet writes, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from those who, from her who lies in wait or in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall. I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she'll be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land, Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead in the days as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. Like the crawling things of the earth, they shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? 
He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. I love that. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Amen. A whole chapter read in church. Wow. Thank you for bearing with me, reading through such a powerful testimony of God's work and who he is. His attributes are on full display here in Micah. Micah has seven chapters, and I purposely selected this section for us to read today because it captures the essence of all the themes that exist throughout the entire book of this minor prophet. Now, again, by minor, we mean not in terms of prominence. We mean minor in terms of length, especially when you compare these minor prophets to books like Isaiah with a much longer testimony, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, much longer books. Uh, Micah is seven chapters. Prophets speak on God's behalf, and the spirit of the prophetic ministry is about promoting God's people's character, that they would have integrity. And so one of the characteristics of the prophetic books is that they also served as rebukes. They served as a, a course corrective measure as God would dispatch his prophets to speak words to his people about what God was going to do to correct them. So Micah was this prophet who lived in the 8th century BC, and he was from a city that was about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So he's in the south, and he prophesied during this time of the divided monarchy before the exile of all the Jews under the empire of the Babylons, of the Babylonians rather. He was a contemporary of the prophets Isaiah, Hosea, and Amos, whom we've already covered on Sundays. And really, if we look at Micah's writings, they serve as a wonderful example of kind of that classic prophetic ministry that we think of as we consider the prophets of the Old Testament. He proclaims judgment, which is not comfortable, is it? The opening verses of this chapter, as I read them, are heavy words. I loved uh, the prayer coming into, Lori's prayer coming into this, that, that, you know, it can be heavy, and we need, we need the grace as well to be reminded, um, because the weight of God is definitely on full display as we hear these words of power and judgment, his justice in full view. But he also, um, while he's proclaiming judgment, you notice that that wasn't the final word. It ends with a bit of mercy and grace. So he's, he's proclaiming, Micah, the penalties that the people of Israel will encounter in both the northern kingdom with its capital in Samaria and also in the southern kingdom with its capital in Jerusalem. And so if we look at his prophecy and just break it down, if you were to look at this book and study it on your own, what you would see are three cycles of prophecy, if you will. Three oracles, three cycles that explain, you know, God's word to the people. The first is from chapters 1 and 2. And Micah is addressing all the people. He says, hear all of you, when he opens up that prophetic word. And then chapters 3 through 5, he then moves to address the cycle again. It's a repeated pattern, a cycle. The the second cycle, he says to the leaders of Israel. He's addressing the leadership. And then the third cycle is chapters 6 through 7, which we read from. It's basically, hear what Yahweh says. He has a lawsuit against you. Each cycle starts with judgment and ends with mercy or salvation. That's the cycle of all three 
uh, in this pattern uh, in, in Micah. All three, judgment and mercy and grace. It's this back and forth. It starts with judgment, but it ends with mercy. It's this presentation as God as both judge and savior. So it's this triad cycle that needed to be repeated and addressed to the different audiences of Israel. And so this back and forth, we, we just see it as totally, totally visible, and it starts off with here, or Shema, right? It hearkens to the, the great commandment of, of Israel, which was Shema, there's only one God, Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 6. So Shema, the prophet's coming with these weighty words, listen, Israel, pay attention, this judgment that's coming to you, and mind you, Mind you, this is before the Babylonians came in and ransacked them. So some of the overarching lessons from Micah include, number one, that through, though that there may be evil times, even when the world is wicked, there will always be a remnant of faithful people that God will continue to uphold with his covenant. He will always remember his covenant with his remnant. So the remnant idea is in Micah. The second... Uh, in the second chapter, um, a great example is he says, verse 12, I will gather the remnant of Israel. He's gathering his remnant. Secondly, a theme that we see in Micah is that there's a king coming. A Davidic king will come to rule over the people. And this is the verse we love to read at Christmas, don't we? Uh, chapter 5, verse 2, you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth For me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. What a wonderful prophecy about the Messiah who came, Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, the king, right? We see that theme of the king and his kingdom coming also in Micah. And also we see that this idea of God is just and he's merciful. I already mentioned this, that God has both full, complete justice, it's his nature, and he's also fully, completely merciful, And his attributes are to be the characteristics of his people. In chapter 6 of Micah, verse 8, it says, What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Many of us know that as a sort of memory verse, that this is a verse that God desires for us to live out, that we would be just and that we would love mercy and all along the way be humble before our God, because he is God, we are not. And so now we have this personal response. As we think about chapter 7, as we just read the whole thing, it brings these themes kind of together, and it really, chapter 7, finishes as a penultimate final word about the hope that we can have through God, because the Lord is victorious over all the sinfulness of mankind. That's how it ends. You know, we like the stories that end on the high note, and certainly Micah in chapter 7 ends that way. Though the prophet had harsh words to start with that cycle in this last part of his his prophetic word here, he leaves us with this message about hope in the power of God. I'm so glad. That's what you want to be left with, don't you? And so we have Micah's own personal response to God's justice and mercy. And now breaking the passage down in chapter 7, the first section there, first six verses, is really about his sorrow. Micah is filled with grief because of a sinful world. Verses 1 and 2 opened up and he says, Woe is me! He's not just having a pity party here. 
This is a, a sense of grief, a deep grief, a lament, if you will, that he has because he's alone. You know, and the imagery is so vivid here. It's this imagery of him walking into a vineyard and expecting, he's hungry, he's hungry, he wants to eat, but everything's been pulled off the vines. There's nothing to satisfy him. Um, by the way, right now, we see that all around us, don't we? As we drive and we see the vines, they look beautiful right now. This is, some of them are starting to turn, but some of them still look fairly lush. And when you walk in there, in those vines, the fruit has been picked. So if you're looking to have, you know, a nice little charcuterie plate in the vineyard and pull some off the vine, you'll be, you know, disappointed. There's nothing there. It's been harvested. What he's talking about here is there's no one around who's godly anymore. There's no one who is following after the Lord with faithfulness. There's no one following the commands of God. There's no one upholding the covenant. I'm alone. and, And so he's lamenting the fact that that should not be. He's not finding fellowship with any of God's people because they're all in sin. God's people should be the ones as the keepers among all the nations of the one true God, and here they are. They're all about themselves, and it goes through this description. It was horrible. This was God's people he was talking about. You can't even, you can't even trust your, your home life. Now, he, he says in the public sector, you know, the, the princes and the judges, they, they rule unjustly. They do things according to their own desires. You know, they, they take bribes, and, and they're out for their own agenda. And so the city, it's corrupt, and our government's corrupt, but also... Down to our homes, he's saying. Uh, a man can't even, you know, go to sleep at night with the person that he, his, his wife, uh, and he can't even trust her. And households, children are rising up against parents, and I'm alone because all of this is wrong. And I'm the only one, Mike is saying, that sees that this is wrong. Where is God in this? This is not just. We've forgotten what's just. As I read through this first section, I was convicted because his lament is, is like, you know, and you have to carry some of these metaphors of ancient, the ancient world. His lament is really deep, a deep groaning. And I realize I, I don't have that as I think of the world, that same level of grief. It's the, it, for them, it's like the, the, uh, the audible sound of a jackal howling. You know, and I imagine if I heard a howl, right? This is what they. This is the language of the text that it's drawing upon something that sounds so eerie, and 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 make you just gives you chills, right? Um, it's it's scary to hear, and this is the deep lament that he has. He's like one howling out there because he's alone. Justice is gone, and I was convicted because I thought, you know, I don't do I grieve for the sinfulness in the world? Not because I'm trying to necessarily just be right or uphold what is right, but because where the world goes, as it, everybody serves their own, their own will and their own way and their own gods, it's not healthy for them. You know, do I grieve to the point, am I burdened enough to see that the, the world around me and its brokenness, it's not healthy, it's not good. Do I lament in that way? And I would say I could, I definitely need to take a, a step back and, and, and consider the weight of sin that exists in the world. I, I don't think I, I mourn the way the prophet mourns. Micah saw that this lack of fellowship he had was the product of sin, so he grieved it. Woe is me. Sin is grievous. 
Do we recognize that sin is grievous? My sin is grievous even. Your sin is grievous. The world of people around us chasing after their own desires, it's grievous. And when we confess our sins, we should be filled with a certain grief. When our brothers and sisters confess their sins to us, if we confess to each other our sins to pray for one another, we should grieve, not because, again, we're self-righteous or holier than thou, but because, you know, the weights you're carrying of sin, that's, that's hard for you. And, and only God can free you from that. It, the brokenness and the weight that sin brings into our lives, it's, it's just not supposed to be that way. God wants to spare us from that. We should love our neighbors to the point of grief. We should love one another to the point of grief when they're not living in the, the most healthiest of sense, the way that God has purposed all to have a relationship with him. We should grieve over sin. God is wonderful, and he's one whom we trust in, and he's the one that we can find justice and salvation. So grieve because the text says, as well, because he is just, it says, the day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. We all love justice, don't we? Don't you love justice when it comes to watching a movie or reading a story or seeing a current event? Do you love when there's justice served? We love justice. The text is saying here that, you know, the, the watchmen of this metaphor of, of those, those um, heralds that would stand watch at night, so if there's any threats coming, they were alarms, like an alarm system to the city to warn you, like there's threats coming if an enemy was advancing. Watchmen in the scripture were also individuals watching for the coming of the Lord and his judgment. And he's saying that that day, those watchmen, they're sounding the alarms because it's come, your, your sin There's now no longer any more time. Judgment, the penalty of that sin is coming to pass. And certainly within generation, a generation, they would see this come to pass, the judgment of God. But do we like seeing justice? Yes. But does that make it comfortable to watch? No. Now, I was thinking about this all the way back to some of my earliest memories, you know, in elementary school, out on the playground hanging out with friends, and two, two buddies of mine got into a fist fight. I was really young, but I remember as they were brawling against each other, I was kind of a bystander, and when it got broken up, you know, I was terrified because I was next to this, and justice was being served. They interrogated them. They got in trouble and suspended, and then they interrogated me because I was the, the eyewitness account, and I watched them, and I, I totally confessed. I mean, I was, a little, I was tr- terrified that I was being interrogated, but I didn't like the fact that my friends got in trouble and I was part of that. But I was innocent in the whole matter. I was literally just standing there. It was not comfortable to watch justice come to fruition as these guys, they got suspended and all that stuff, right? If, if we're honest, though we love justice, it should never be something that we take pleasure in, right? As I consider disciplining my kids, I don't like it. You know, I don't like that, that you know, sometimes we have to, go through the motions of, you know, restriction. Um, um, and they're not here today, so I could probably say all kinds of stuff, but they'll watch online, so I won't, because then I'll owe them money. We have this little thing, by the way, in our family. Dad, as a pastor, if you use us in a sermon, you're going to have to pay 25 cents every time, right? So limit how many times you talk about us. Anyway, um, discipline is not something that we find comfort in. And here, the judgment is coming to Israel, and it's going to be a, a day of punishment that's going to upend their, their experience, their homes. It's going to devastate them. 
Because God, he's not going to allow sin to just run rampant in the world, and especially among his people. And so the watchmen, they, they alert to this day, and what God is going to do in discipline is, it's for his people, they're going to become as they were before the exodus. They're going to once again become slaves. They're going to be prisoners to the Babylonians, and they're going to be captive. They're going to be displaced from their land. He's going to separate them from the land of promise, the land of the covenant. He's going to, for a time, remove them from that. And isn't that kind of one of the ways of discipline, by the way? As, as I think about child-rearing, as I think about um, being in the classroom, as I'm in the classroom teaching on a regular basis now in the public school system, we practice this, not to this level, but separation, the idea of separation, right? If a student is not able to follow directives, you have to start removing privileges from them so that they understand the freedom that they've been enjoying of that privilege. So as you separate them from their privileges, usually, for the most part, students, children, they come back into line because they liked their privilege. They liked their freedom in that privilege. So you separate. And I I don't like it. I've had to send students out of my class. I've had to send students home before. That's a, a... a major separation. You don't, you're not doing well in the class today, and you're a danger, so you gotta, we, we want you to be safe and everyone else. Um, I, I have plenty of stories. Any educators, you probably have stories as well. Kids like not safe in the classroom. They have to be separated. So this is what's happening with Israel. He's separating them from the land. They will be displaced. The judgment of God is displacing them from their privileges of that promise, being in the land. And he allows, then, in this judgment, certain things to happen. That The point is, is that they would hopefully wake up, that his people would wake up. Jesus says things like this about, about discipline and, and the things that are supposed to wake people up. He says, there'll be things like war. There'll be rumors of war. There'll be natural disasters, he talks about. Plagues and famines, Jesus says. Lawlessness will increase. Jesus said that. And he said that the love of many will grow cold. This we find in Matthew 24 and also its corollary passage in Luke chapter 21. By the way, does any of this sound familiar? Does it sound a little familiar to you? See, in Israel's day, at the time Micah was prophesying, there were things that were happening to be warning signs to wake them up. And inevitably, justice had its course, and they were displaced. If we look at the biblical precedent for how God's judgment comes to pass, it looks the way that Jesus is describing. If we stand back, and if we were to um, kind of correlate current events even, things that have happened in recent history to how um, the prophets of old would have interpreted the elements of what's happening in our day, they would say those are elements of God's judgment, Because we've also experienced, I mean, from 2017, from when I moved up to Sonoma County with my family to do ministry here, from that time forward, the past five, six years, there's been a lot of this kind of stuff that has come to a pinnacle, right? The first year, within months after we moved, there was the massive fire that hit uh, our county and the city. And then, you know, like two years later, there was a massive flood. Do you remember that? I mean, the river flooded. Apparently, it was like a 20-year event. Um, The whole West County was flooded. I was like, what's happening here? 
And it's like everybody was telling us, this usually this is unusual. And then you had a pandemic. And then as we turn on the news and we see just the tensions, the love of people growing cold, all the tensions and unrest, the, the vitriol that we experience, and people, you know, violent crimes have gone up, and, you know, people's attitudes are afraid. There's, there's so much out there that worries us, you know. Just looking at the news, I don't have to tell you. The prophets of the old probably would have looked at all of these elements and said, that's a sign of God's justice. And though we don't know what tomorrow will hold, I do think that as I personally, in the ministry, looked at some of these items, things happening in our world, what was its point? It could serve as a disciplinary point to help people wake up, to help people see their need for God, to help people be humble to the point of saying, I can't live this life my own direction and way. I need something greater than myself. I need God. Our hope was through these things that people would turn to the Lord, I won't forget as well, when that fire happened, remember that we had this big event over at the Sonoma County Fairgrounds, and it was in the big uh, exposition center, and there were like, I don't know, how many, would you say, two to 3,000 people there? Worshiping the Lord from our county. And it was like a sight. For us, even, we were overwhelmed by it. We were like, if this is what God is doing, he's turning his people to him and ramping us up that other people might also come, like, Let's go. Let's do this. If it takes a fire to help us turn upward, then, you know, that's what maybe God is allowing to happen so that we turn to him. But let's be honest about some of these things. How do they respond to this judgment in Micah's day? Did you hear it in that second section? How do people respond when things seem to not go well for them? When judgment, if you will, comes your way and you, you, power is stripped from you, your privilege is taken and you are separated from the things that you enjoy. Did they respond well? They did not. Um, they, they said things like, where is your God? And isn't that what we do as well when we experience so, so-called calamities or evils in the world? We say, mm, if there's a good God, why is this happening to me? There must be no God. Or if there is a God and he's doing this, I don't like him. I want nothing to do with him. Right? Well, what was Micah's response to this? How to respond? Micah says, as for me, I will look to the Lord, and I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. And this is a man also seeing this judgment coming. He has the opportunity to respond the same way. Mm, I don't like this God. I don't like what's happening here. He's being too hard on them. But he says, no, as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. And while he is talking about, you know, his lament over the sin of the people, he also, if you noticed in this passage, talks about his own sin. And he recognizes in humility that I also need the Lord because I would be right there as well with them, lost in this sinfulness and these attitudes that are not godly. So for me, I will look to the Lord. And I will wait for him through these things that will come, through this judgment that will come. How have you seen people respond around you to the things that are happening in our world? It hasn't necessarily changed. If there are cycles and patterns to human history, history repeats itself. And we see some of these patterns happening again, calamities happening again. How have you seen people respond? Have you seen people do what I've said and say, I don't really want anything to do with the things of faith? 
Have you seen people lean into God and say, boy, I, I, you know, I've lost everything. 2017, I lost everything. But then I watched God work. I've heard that. I've seen both. I've heard both responses. God's judgment should cause lament as it did for Micah. But the hope is that people would respond in the affirmative to God, that they would wake up and turn to God. The scripture says that godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance is to change your thinking, to change your perspective. When are we ever completely sovereign of our lives anyway? God is the one who's in control. Change our thinking. This leads to a course correction. The way that I was living was not God's plan for my life, so I want to correct the course. I haven't been trusting God. I haven't been worshiping him. And the good news is just simply this, is that the door is, God's door is still open for us to make that correction, for us to change our thinking, for us to renew our mind in what's right and true and just. And, and then let the behaviors follow what we believe. People can stern, still turn to God, and God will not turn them away. That is our current reality. So my prayer is that I hope that people come alive to God. As hard as some of these things are, and we're in it together, that it would be an opportunity for us to say, Lord, we have nothing anyway, so we must turn to you. You know, you cited Job this morning in worship to talk about a person who had everything taken away, and this was a man who was righteous, not ungodly. And he still says, though he slay me, yet I will put my hope in him. Right? And that needs to be our attitude. And as we read the fullness of that story, God did not forget Job. God took care of him and continued to bless Job. When you read the whole story, you see he never abandoned Job. But his life was this test to prompt out his faith. And there certainly were times when Job said, I wish I never was born. This is too hard. It's not to say that this is, an e- this is an easy walk. But in these moments, who else do we have to fall upon than the Lord himself? So Micah says he looks to the Lord and waits for the God of my salvation. And when people say to him, where is your God? That's what they said in the text. He says to them, who is like our God? That's a wordplay. Micah's name in Hebrew, his name. They always named their children in Hebrew with meanings. We don't really do that to to our kids today. But Micah's name in Hebrew, it means, who is like our God? That's what his name means. And so if you were reading this in Hebrew and you heard the exclamation of these people angry at God for all this judgment and the suffering that they're about to endure, they're saying, where is your God? It would sound like Micah's name. It's almost a mocking of Micah. And so when people say to him, where is your God? He says, who is like our God? There is no one like him. And so if people ever say to you, where is your God? You say to them, there is no one like my God. That is the ancient truth proclaimed here. And the, the end, the penultimate finality of Micah's testimony here, verses 11 through 20, who is like our God? The one who is completely just. He is the one who is completely merciful. He is, he is just and merciful. It says in verse 19, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You know, sometimes I'm just. Sometimes I have a good sense of justice. 
but my justice sometimes is there at the expense of my mercy. You know, maybe I'm too just. Or sometimes I'm merciful, but I'm too afraid to stand up for what's right. You know, I'm not completely just and merciful. That's a work in progress that God is working with me on. But as I consider who God is, no one is like our God. He is completely just, and simultaneously, he is completely merciful. He is both. He never lapses on his judgment, and he never lapses at being merciful. Verses 11 through 20 reveal that God has not forgotten his covenant with Abraham. His mercy still is there. The covenant with Abraham, way back in the beginning, when you read all the way back in Genesis, was to bless this sonless man with a multitude of descendants. God wanted relationship with the world. He created this world. He wants relationship with his image bearers. And the people of Israel were to be this example of God wanting relationship. And so when, when God's mercy comes, it says in verse 12, that even Israel's enemies, they would come to them for salvation. Did you hear that description? From Egypt, where you were in captivity as slaves, to Babylon, where you were exiled, they're going to come to you for salvation. Because all along the way, God's original covenant was to bless Abraham with multitudes of descendants, like more numerous than the stars in the sky. And the last time I went out and looked up at the sky at night, it was a clear night. It was when Jupiter was out. And me and my boys, we stood out there and we just looked. And we didn't have any light pollution where we were. And it was marvelous. Do that sometime, again, and remember this covenant. God told Abraham, your descendants are going to be more numerous than all those stars. And on a dark night, it's mind-blowing. It's incredible. And we know fast forward the fullness of that covenant, don't we? Because we are children of Abraham spiritually through Jesus. Basically, what is being said here is God's mercy is so powerful, it's going to spill out of Israel to the whole world that everybody, the Gentiles, not just Jews, everyone's going to come and receive their salvation. God's going to restore to the fullest degree because he loves the world beyond your imagination. He is merciful. He is just, but he is also merciful. We are here today because of the benefits of God's mercy. You and I were here today because God has been merciful to us. We are the the sons and daughters of Abraham because of King Jesus who came to Bethlehem, who sits on the throne. Sinfulness and corruption is not how the story ends. The latter part of chapter 7 ends with victory. The Bible never presents God as somehow maybe losing, losing out the battle. That evil could perhaps have its way. The Bible never presents that. 100% the entire way, the Bible presents God as victorious, and sovereign. He has his way. And so as I think about the victory belonging to him and mercy that is found in God, I think that now is a time for us to be salty Christians. Do you know what I mean? You know what I mean by that, right? You're the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. This is a good time to, in light of our days, be renewed in our fervor for Jesus and our devotion to him. There should be grief over sin, like Micah had, for our neighbors. We, we want them to see the love of God. Really, that's the motivation, is we want people to understand this God who loves you beyond your imagination. I think sometimes it's just that simple. Maybe all the time it's just that simple. If you only knew how much God loves you and 
how much he has demonstrated his love for you, 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 would, you would want to know him. You would want relationship with him. We should, we should love our neighbor and, and maybe be more, more salty with them in the best way. Salty can be negative, but in the biblical sense, it's a good thing. You want your, your food salted well, right? Perhaps this is a time for the church to become more evangelistic, not less evangelistic. We should be filled with the wonder again by this question of Micah, his namesake. Who is like our God? That's a question I want us leaving on, with on our lips today. Who is like our God? When we leave this place, is there anyone else like our God? No one is like him. The picture of judgment here in Micah is overwhelming. The scene the prophet presents, it's a courtroom. If you read the rest of his, his book, it's a courtroom. And God is this judge. Mankind are the defendants. And there is no one from among them that is able to defend their case so that they might escape this guilty verdict. The gavel has been, has been knocked. Justice is served. And ultimately, they will be sentenced to a penalty that they deserve. When the scripture teaches, what the scripture teaches about this is that the justice of God in this sense is eternal death. But we live with the good news And the good news is now, from the the standpoint that we have today, it should not get lost on us that Jesus defends us. Think about this. 1 John, it says, chapter 1, verses 9 through chapter 2, verse 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to show mercy, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, then we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a lawyer, if you will, with the Father. He's defending our case, Jesus Christ the righteous. Or as the psalmist would write, you know, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgressions from you. Psalm 103. This is the reality of the promise being fulfilled in us. God's mercy is given to us through Jesus, and it lifts the burden and the captivity that sin has, and it makes us ultimately free. And even as this world might be passing away, we belong to a city that's not corruptible, a kingdom that has no end. We are citizens of that today. And so I want us to walk out of here saying, who is our God? He's made us citizens of the city. Let's proclaim that more. This is time for the church to be more evangelistic, not less. And maybe that means that we start saying it more. I, I'm guilty of this as well. What are we afraid of? You know, uh, conversations with people that, that are in the public sector and, and spaces outside of church, not in a way to be preachy, if you will. Maybe that's the pejorative idea that we have of evangelism, but it's sharing our lives. Who is like our God? You should know him. You have never seen anyone like him. Amen? Know him. He, he knows you, and he, and he wants relationship with us. Just look at what Jesus did. As we think of the, the prophecy here of Micah, and we think about the cycle God is just, but God is merciful. And so, thanks be to him, and especially through Jesus Christ, we shall say, who is like our God? I want to pray to close us out here.
Lord, you, you are fully just. You, have, you are true. You have created law, right from wrong. You have ordered things out of chaos. You created this world with its beauty and its structure. We can look all around us and see the ways that you, your hand have, has created. We can look at just our area, Sonoma County, and see its beauty and know that you are this powerful creator, a just one. You created order among people. And along the way, we are the ones, that we confess that um, through the fall, we have, we've been born in sin. We've, we've effaced and graffitied on the things that you have made. And at times, we do wander seeking after our own desires, seeking after our own will first, and that can lead to anarchy. But you will always reorder the chaos. We acknowledge you today, Lord, as the just one. And God, we also acknowledge that even though we break the rules at times, that you are there ready to forgive, you sent your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. There is no other way for the penalty of sin to be taken care of. It's only through Jesus. He was your only son. And he not only shows such great love, in all, if we just think about what he did, in his ministry, the ultimate was the fact that he knew this penalty was upon us all, and he saw us, and he said, I'm going to die for them. I'm going to pay that penalty. Eternal death is not okay. They need life. So you gave it to us. When we, Lord, sometimes experience suffering in this world, and we might be questioned, or our faith might grow a little bit doubtful, that, that normal experience of life that at times in our seasons we've gone through, Remind us of Jesus who walked through suffering as well and remind us of his witness that he continued entrusting himself, it says in the text, to one who judges justly. And you did not forget him. You rose him up from the grave and he is alive. So shall we be. So God, I pray that today as your church that we continue to speak his name and his name is on our lips and that um, the work of our hands loves our neighbor, the, our feet where we go, we are getting next to people and simply just loving on them, that they might be pointed to you. And finally, Lord, the heaviness of things that are going on in our world, they weigh on us. And perhaps, Lord, this is a, 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 some element connected to justice and, and things being reordered, but nevertheless, may it be a time where we, we do wake up and we turn to you with fervor and, and we don't neglect this great salvation that we have. May people turn to you in these times and may our testimony lead them there, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.